Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Matt Kirkman to ask six provocative questions, and I guarantee it will be provocative. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So for those who don't, uh, who don't know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Yes, sure. Um, I'm an exhibit developer and project manager with Object Idea. I started that company, gosh, 20 some years ago. Um, I mostly work with uh, museums directly. Sometimes I'm hired by architects and oftentimes I'm hired by exhibition design companies to um, really uncover the underpinnings of the exhibition experience. What are we what are we uh, about? Who are we for? What's the experience like? So my practice is built around developing uh, the visitor experience. Great. Well, you're your perfect guest for us here. Um, I have a little side question I ask people because the answer is always so different. How did you get into this business? Yeah, the, um, it used to be true that there was no way into the business other than a roundabout way. You know, there was, there was no such thing as a degree in, in exhibition design or anything like that. So um, my degree is visual communication, which used to be called commercial art and, and then became environmental graphic design and those kinds of things. So, um, uh, and I'm out of the Chicago area. So the first thing I did was I went to work at a Chicago based advertising and marketing agency. Honestly, within a year's time, I really felt the need to do something more meaningful. I was bothered by the junk mail that I was responsible for, and it kind of rubbed against my uh, my environmental ethic. So being in Chicago, I convinced the Shedd Aquarium to hire me to do environmental graphic design because there was a big project there. They were designing the Oceanarium. It was under construction, a $70 million expansion project for the first time in the Shedd's history. So I brought my design thinking to that institution, my marketing insights, and my passion for the environment to the table. And it really was a very comfortable fit for me. The whole Chicago scene at the time, this is like, what, the late 80s, was being influenced by a kind of a new style of exhibit development, which was team-based. It was not curatorial from on high. And and the person that I got to know, Janet Kamian, was writing a lot about team-based exhibition development. And I also got to know Beverly Sorrell in Chicago, who was launching her um, right, thoughts right. around big idea, mm -hmm. big idea based planning. And I I was so on board. I just I loved learning all of this exhibit theory and and um, the Chicago scene was so lively. And, and I was new to the field and impressionable. And I just loved it. It, you know, it changed my life. At the shed, I worked across the table from a very talented exhibit developer. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And I determined that that's what I wanted to do. The ah, next time. I wanted okay. to do a like the Oceanarium again and again. And I wanted to be in that chair. So, Got it. That was, that was, you answered my next question. I was going to ask, how did you go from um, sort of uh, communication design, commercial uh, marketing, and then yeah. get into the planning thing, which is you know, a lot about words and diagrams, less about that, you know, sort of right, execution right. side. And it's, a, it was an inspiration across the table, an actual person. It was, it was. And, and I, um, so while the shed was opening the oceanarium, I was going to night school <laughs> to get a graduate degree. I, I was going to take, picking up classes in the evenings. Um, I got, I picked up a master's degree in curriculum and instruction because I could get it fast. It was a one ah. year, it was a one year degree. So I, 
created a contract major with an emphasis in interpretation and experiential ed so that I could then market myself as an interpretive designer that brought uh, curriculum constructs and uh, environmental graphic design together. And it, and again, my world changed. And I really thought I would probably work for the National Park Service. <laughs> that was that was my goal, was to work for the Park Service. I wanted to travel around, see the world, and be the a hat. You wanted me. the hat. I wanted the I wanted the hat. I really, really <laughs> did. I really did. But, you know, aquarium design was in my portfolio. So that's what brought me to Boston. Boston was a hot seat for aquarium right. design. Right. Uh, at the time, the, you know, right after the Oceanarium opened. Mm -hmm. And there was a design firm here that was, that no longer exists, but there was a design firm here that was riding a wave. And, and that was the so public aquarium. So to speak. Yeah. Right. The wave was the public aquarium was the answer to right revitalize a waterfront. And we saw good examples in Boston, in Monterey and Baltimore. And then there were many other cities that wanted that secret. Osaka, sauce. So, uh, Chattanooga, yep, right? Yep. All of those are of the same era. And I was in the aquarium design business during that era. And, and I which was, Tampa. which was the firm that wasn't there anymore that our, I, some I of our at, listeners will want to know. Yeah. I worked at Joseph Wetzel Associates. Right. Right. Which became, which, you know, ultimately was bought by a maze design and, and maze design yeah. is still, still around, but, um, mm -hmm. Joe Wetzel's firm was, you know, 52 people big when it was, um, at its maximum, uh, you know, full tilt, many mm -hmm. aquariums being designed at the same time. And I was, it was a comfortable fit for me. I, you know, I was able to work on Tampa and Long Beach and, and London and Taiwan um, wow. Yeah. I've got, I've got some aquarium DNA back in my bloodstream also. It's funny. We haven't yeah, talked about that before. I still do it occasionally. Still do it. Occasionally. The, um, the, the firm so was, that the firm that I have now traces its, uh, its own corporate heritage back actually all the way to Cambridge seven, uh, Cambridge seven yes. was, was, yep. was founded for something else. Now they're architecture firm and they do exhibitions and other things out of Boston, great firm, great people there. Uh, but their, their corporate roots and mine are actually kind of, you know, similar and uh, a lot uh, oriented around aquariums, but I digress, uh, for the sake of our listeners, let's get into some professional development content here. Um, sure. Uh, sure. you, you've got six provocative questions for today. And like I guaranteed at the beginning, they are indeed provocative. What, what led you to these? What, what led you to the idea of asking provocative questions? Where's it coming from? You could say that I started to keep a tally. Um, you know, as I was working on projects and I experienced lessons learned, I started to keep a list of these things that I found challenging to me. They were thoughts that I had that were based on my own experience that I thought might challenge the industry. And I kept them close and until now, quite frankly, have kept some of oh, these all right. close because I because they're risky. And you know, so I love the idea that we're calling them provocative questions because I have been secreting these these away as something that I have called the manifesto. <laughs> the Matif that manifesto the I do okay. the manifesto the manifesto and I you know, and I you know at one point had them printed out and the, the number is quite you know we're going to talk about six here today but you know, I have a list of about 25 or 30 just things that I've learned the hard way things that still challenge me things that that I consider very provocative to our industry and they make me scratch my head so I I chose a, a you know a select number of them to bring to and the you have, table. And you have you have twenty five of them. We're doing six today. That means yeah. I'm going to have to have you back three more times. 
<laughs> yeah. All right. And these, these are some of these have not been really unveiled before in public is what you're saying. These questions. Uh, true. True. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Not in, I, this, not in this format. I mean, I bring them up all the time with my clients, right. but never in an organized declared way like right. this. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm sure our listeners are like, well, get, get into it. What, what is this craziness? All right. So <laughs> I know. I know. as always, no. I, I have the list, but I only have the list. So I'm as curious about this as our listeners are. And I'm very curious about actually every single one of them. And in fact, since I had the list, which is not very long, I have just been looking at the question, asking it of myself and wondering what's my answer to the question before you know we even talk about it. So I encourage the listener when you when you hear these, I'm going to say the, I'm going to say each of the questions, and just think about it to yourself. Quick, what is your answer? And then we're going to hear the answer from the manifesto. Okay, so here we go. Six provocative that. questions. Number one: Do exhibits default to clutter? Do exhibits default to clutter? Listeners, think about your answer to that. And with no further ado, let's get to your thinking about it, Matt. Do you have an answer to that? Or do you have some follow-up questions, ways, ways we should think about it? Or are you just going to answer it? I'm, I'm going to um, address the provocation with, with some thoughts. Excellent. Do okay. exhibits default to clutter? I th think many, if not most, do. And this, the, the, um, this leads me to the idea uh, that uh, about organization of exhibits. So something, something that is not cluttered is organized. So if an exhibit is not hyper-organized, exhibits will be perceived as mostly clutter. So, you know, in this, in this uh, industry where we are so tempted to show more and more, you know, we say more on the floor, more on the floor. And in, I would say, more recent attempts to be more universally appealing more diversely stimulating exhibits have slipped into a trend of being both visually and intellectually cluttered exhibit organization is a, an art form and a science. And I would say that one of the ways that I think about this and the, one of the ways that I avoid clutter is to do less better, be a stand, you know, being, being a stand, being a person on the project who is a stand for Beauty and simplicity, beauty and simplicity in both the intellectual and the physical construct. I think the intellectual and the physical construct are so intimately tied that when one works, the other works better. And without that kind of intimate connection between intellectual construct and physical construct, we end up with clutter. I, okay, so I'm just... I'm seeing how this is going to work out in this podcast. I'm just going to agree with you on everything, and then we're not going to have like a debate or something. But I'm I'm betting that you know most of the most of the listeners are going to agree with you as well. So, which is interesting because you're you're saying that do exhibits default to clutter? They do. Here's the solution. And if other people are agreeing, well, you know, we kind of have to get in, get our mobilize our army, our decluttering army. And you said do less, better which is sort of the antidote to more on the floor, more on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I had a nickel for every time. And I have won jobs by, by saying my approach will be to do less better because when a client brings a potential project to me and they say something like, we want to do this, this, and this, and this, but we only have this much money. My answer is, well, let's do less and we'll do it better. And I, 
I have, I, I kid you not, I have one job. So I've just shared a trade secret. <laughs> That's know, it. That's all I it's have, just like. Uh, you know, when it's appropriate, I I pull out that phrase and it is, it resonates for people all the time. Yeah, it's, it Let's resonates for me. There's a, another. There's an adjective that you use that's new to me. I want to go back and just ask about that. Um, that uh, in order to avoid clutter, you you go in the other direction and you aim for hyper-organized. And if an exhibit is not hyper-organized, yeah. it'll be perceived as clutter. Can you <laughs> say more? What what is what is I I kind of know organized, but what is hyper organized? What do you mean by that? So I'm a real uh, advocate for revealing the organizational structure of an exhibit to the visitor, and it might be I don't know. I'm going to take I'm going to take a few things I've worked on recently. Like it might be a um, an exhibit about an artist, and this artist it happens to be Edward Hopper. Edward Hopper made five trips to Gloucester to paint seascapes. And the exhibit is organized around his five trips. We'd be fools in the exhibit development department to not open that exhibit by saying Edward Hopper made five trips to Gloucester and he painted five summers in a row. And this exhibit features the evolution of his work over five summers. Why would we not put that out there? So that exhibit, I would say, is hyper organized. Is it, is it organized like even that? in the sense that when you're in any one of those periods, any one of those summers when he went to Gloucester, that you're very aware of it then too. In other words, it's, it's repeated. This is the structure. Here's where you are, et cetera. And it's very totable. Yes. More evidence of being hyper-organized is the construct, the design construct mirrors the intellectual construct. So we, you know, we have section dividers. Graphically, we have a section divider every, every summer. Here's a new summer in Gloucester. Here's a reminder what year we're in and what's going on in Edward Hopper's life at this time. I think we have to start with that level of hyper-organization. We can always, you know, you can always have sidebars and and departures from a hyper-organized exhibit, but you, I think you got to have a really strong organizational structure so, for, so that visitors aren't distracted. You know, I mean, it's a very, the exhibit environment is very distracting. You're on your feet. We're going to talk more about this with one of the other provocations but it's mm -hmm. a, it's mm -hmm. it it also defaults to being to being lost you default to being lost unless you are uh, in a hyper organized exhibition space lost uh, in not a good way <laughs> right good lost and bad lost nice one nice one uh -huh. um mm -hmm. yeah okay so th this is uh, do less better and the design construct mirrors the intellectual construct i feel I feel borrowed topics coming up in my daily newsletter here. Um, number two, I really want to get to this one. <laughs> okay, number two, do exhibits teach very well? Question mark. Do exhibits teach very well? Listeners, think about that. What's your answer to that question? And now, Matt, would you address the provocation with a series of thoughts? Uh, my first thought is no. <laughs> <laughs> they they don't exhibits don't exhibits don't teach very well in the classic way that we think of teaching you know i have a pedagogical foundation and curriculum and instruction and i you know i can write a really mean cognitive objective i really can mm -hmm. um but i'm still a strong advocate that museum education and learning from exhibits is something that doesn't happen the way that we think learning happens um you know exhibits are a form of leisure time learning. I have this little anecdote 
a visual and a story that I use with my clients. Exhibits are are both shredded wheat and lucky charms. So usually a client is looking for some semblance of shredded wheat, enrichment and nourishment. But at the same time, they want lucky charms. They want some sweetness and joy and colorful nonsense. <laughs> That's not necessarily obviously good for you. So people come for that balance of enrichment, nourishment, and you know some sugar coating. So now it says right I, on the I, box I, of Lucky Charms that they're good for you. Are you telling me Lucky Charms are not good for you? <laughs> it says it's packed with vitamins. I don't see what the problem is. Well, they're they're yeah, that's probably true. My I guess my point being that we kind of shy, we many of us shy away from pure shredded wheat, and some of us are repulsed by the idea of Lucky Charms. And I think that a good exhibit is a little bit of both. You know, it's as a as a form of experiential ed exhibition that, that the experiential goals and objectives more so than teaching goals or knowledge-based goals, I think are the most achievable outcomes. So what, when we develop exhibition plans, I think the goals for visitors that they should learn this are actually secondary to the goals that they will encounter this, do this, or see this, touch this, or hear this. So the didactic information, which we often call messages or content, is is difficult for visitors to accumulate over their ambulatory learning experience. You're on your feet. Um, right. Ambulatory means you're yeah, you're I know walking. I have a lot of jargon around this one. Yeah, yeah. No, I, have a lot of I think we I think we get it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you, but you're saying um, in, when you when you ask the question, do exhibits teach very well? The previous question was, do exhibits default to clutter? And you're answering. The first one with basically, yes, but you can fight that with things like hyper-organization, for example, or uh, mirroring the intellectual construct with the uh, with the physical construct. But in this case, the second one, do exhibits teach very well? Are you saying the answer is, as you said, no, and that's that's <laughs> the nature of the medium. In other words, exhibits as a, as a teaching experience as you know you could take a class you could take a course you could uh, get a hire a tutor you could uh, scour the internet for how to videos so it's all ways to learn something but you're saying exhibits are not ideally suited at for teaching they're they are ideally suited for something similar but it's not teaching is that what you're saying yeah yeah that's a good good summary thank you for that i can't help but think about when i see evaluation exhibit evaluations you know visitors don't usually recall unless they're really provoked by a survey they don't really recall or they don't communicate with their friends and and family hey you know you really need to go see the science storms exhibit because you'll learn all about this they say you should really go see that exhibit because you'll get a chance to create a tornado you know so those experiential right. those experiential outcomes are have an eclipsing it's not that the learning is not happening; it's the experiential outcomes eclipse those of learning. So right, you're going. You're going to. You're going to have the experience. the experience itself has merit. That's the purpose. The uh, I'm going to the Absolutely. Grand Canyon not to learn Absolutely. about uh, I don't know seismology or geology. I'm going because the, it's right. the Grand Canyon, and that's right. cool, and I want that experience. So yeah, and bringing up there, the Grand Canyon is a great one because this is Freeman Tilden 101. You know this one. Yeah, is the I'm kind of stuck on this because I think it's fascinating. Um, I'm guessing. That when you say, when you basically say, do exhibits teach very well? The answer is no. That you're saying that 
on their own, they don't. In other words, in the hands of someone who, you know, if uh, you were to take a tutor or an educational professional or uh, your teacher or your parent, and they were to take you through an exhibit and you had them with you, and they were to use it as a teaching tool, that could be quite educational. But you're saying that the exhibit itself is sort of a Dr. Seuss machine. The idea that sort of yeah. sneeches go in one end and they come out the other end with a star on their belly, and that indicates that they have now learned something. That 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 is not exactly so. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So for any, in other words, for any uh, uh, museum education staff that are that are out there, I'm just trying to figure out, like, you know, what kind of hate mail you should get, and the hate mail yeah, should exactly. be like, yeah, right, no, right. the exhibits, no, totally the exhibits agree. need you. The education staff is that is how you can make an exhibition even more educational, or or educational in a more classical sense, in a pedagogical lesson, quiz, repeat, retain kind of a sense. Which is, I, I think, one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot more, you know, in-gallery engagement with with docents and smart carts. And, you know, all those those didn't exist 25 years ago. That, that The idea of bringing educators into the gallery, I think, is is a great thing. And bringing performance and live talks and tours into the into the galleries using the gallery using installations using exhibit installations as an educational tool with facilitation i think we see a lot more of that based on the the need for the, you know those museum educators to get their their ideas out on the floor because you know uh, objects and labels are just not really not really doing it and it's interesting you you're bringing up the example of the the educational cart the fact that there are educational cards and educators out in the gallery, if you think about it, it's kind of evidence for the point you're making. You're saying, yeah. do exhibits teach very well? No. Notice the fact that there are educators and carts in the gallery, supplementing what the gallery is doing it on, on its own and turning the gallery into an educational experience or more so. If, if it were already doing a perfect job, one would not need those things. So that's never thought about it that way. <laughs> And let the uh, let's uh, make sure we get your email address at the end of the show so people know who to email their <laughs> comments to. Okay, uh, this is a podcast, but we're, we're we're recording through a video medium, and I can see Matt's face, and I can tell you he means well by all of these things. His heart is in the right place, and and um, and I'll even I'll even double down. I agree with what he's saying. Darn it! So uh, I think I think you are these these are these provocations are are for the good. I think it's great. Uh, speaking of which, number three, uh, do exhibits need to allow for personalization or customization? I'll say that again because it's long. Do exhibits need yeah. to allow for personalization or customization? Everyone mull that over for just a split second. Mm -hmm. And over, let's get the manifesto on this one. So this one comes from... Yeah, from clients provoking me as an exhibit developer or designer, they say, well, we need some level of customization. We need people to leave feedback. We need people to be able to say who they are and contribute in an exhibit. So do exhibits really need to allow for that? And I would say not always. Um, this is a bit of a wishy-washy one, admittedly. But the the point I want to make is that personalization and customization is inherently already built in. So it's not that you need to allow for it. You need to acknowledge that it's already there. So this goes back to the point about leisure. There are very few mandates 
for museum visitors. You know, they're they're not subpoenaed to appear at the museum. They are not required to buckle a seatbelt. They're rarely asked to take a certain path. There's a lot of uh, personalization built in. You know, the, I think the, the idea of having attending exhibits be like community service for certain offenders could be a brilliant idea for a lot of different reasons. But <laughs> yeah, um, that's let's let's definitely talk about that. I can um, I can see some grants again, being brought my, in on that basis. <laughs> my, you know, my point being that you know the exhibition medium is already offering an extremely high level of personalization. You know, if you're self-motivated, you've been given free choice circulation, you're again having that ambulatory experience when you're not being tested at the end, there's a tremendous amount of personalization. You know, when I go to a museum, um, I I love that choice. You know, I, I decided to come. I stayed as long as I wanted. I was drawn to the giant purple geode because I thought it was cool. I took my picture in front of it. I posted mm -hmm. it. So all this, you know, all of that for me was personalized and customized and i see at times the an exhibition that is aiming at customization is actually delivering complexity which is to me off-putting you know if i have to log in or carry a ticket or wear a bracelet or you know those kinds of things um for me i challenge whether that is that level of customization is valuable or is for sure. off-putting and for, for me, sure would you would you say that would you say there are situations where that in other words can we imagine I, I can imagine situations where that level of complexity would be would be welcome that the the trade-off for the visitor that they get for doing that it's like you know by putting on this wristband you get to be you know by yourself in a room with the crown jewels whatever it is that there could be scenarios yep. where where that's a fine trade-off that complexity is fine I, I agree with you there. You know, I can think of my favorite example of, of that was a, was a health exhibit. No surprise. You've probably seen this yourself. If you have, you know, if you haven't been responsible for one and you've probably even seen one where, where you as a visitor benefit from the exhibit, knowing that you are, that you identify as male, that you're a smoker, that you, um, you know, you live in the Midwest, whatever your whatever right. your and then, it, then it, it tracks you or measures your body mass index or yeah. gives you exercise tips at the end. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So I've seen an exhibit like that that I thought, okay, this is a really good example of how this level of complexity, because I didn't have to think about it and it was actually personal. It wasn't, it wasn't fantasy. It wasn't like, you know, I'm going to build a bird and, and therefore I'm going to become the best bird I can be. You know, those, those kinds of exhibits i i find just hmm. quite overly complex so you're kind of the answer here do exhibits need to allow for personalization or customization the answer is you said not always sounds like also what you're saying is kind of like in some cases absolutely in all other cases no <laughs> that's a that's a good answer jonathan because yeah. you're you're mentioning something you're, you got me very i'm very excited about these things that you're you're talking about and i agree with you that you know this idea that it's a checkbox like okay all it's trendy it's trendy to be personalized. Yeah. We need the, you know, we've all uh, been through the situation where like, should the exhibit do facial recognition? And in some yeah. cases, the answer is actually yes. And, but in, 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 I guess we're saying in, in most cases, probably the answer is no. That doesn't take away from yeah, the fact that in some cases, it's definitely yes. An exhibit doesn't fail because it doesn't have 
personalization or customization. Right. It's not an it's not a marker of failure or success. I, I bet there's all kinds of you said you had 25 of these and we're only doing the tip of the iceberg, <laughs> but some of the other ones are, you know, do do exhibits need to have blank? Do exhibits need to have other blank? Do exhibits, do all exhibits yeah. need to have a XYZ? Do all exhibits need an ABC? I bet you got a lot of these. Yeah, like, you know, one that we're not going to talk about is uh, crowdsourced, you know, doesn't, you know, crowdsourced material. You mean participatory? Does every does every exhibit need a, a post-it note wall or the digital equivalent yep, thereof? Because we're, because it's hard to find one anymore that doesn't conclude or somewhere in the middle have a wall of post-it notes. You know? Right. Some kind of guest book. Do that. Or a, is, that part of our, is that part of our standard rep now? I, I yeah. Okay. So that but that's in our that's in our next show. We're not going to talk about it in this show. Okay, so <laughs> let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Designed for Culture. Today, I am talking with Matt Kirkman. So, Matt, I think our next point is number three. We got three more. We've done uh, we've done the top three. We got three more. This this one has me. Uh, I'm not sure what I think of this question. This is very provocative. Have we lost our voice? Have we lost our voice? Listeners, what do you think of what do you think that question even means? And how would you answer it? And over to Matt for your thoughts about this provocation. Yeah, this is also, I would say, kind of a risky one for me because of where we are in our industry with a capital I. You know, every aspect of museum work is now uh, you know, in a conversation of challenging authority and conversations of participatory crowdsourced content. So, you know, how is that? I guess my question is, how has that influenced what museum voice is? And, you know, have we lost our voice? I worry that we have in in caught up in these trends to democratize the museum and deconstruct authority. I'm worried that we have actually lost the good voice that we had. So that, you know, another way of saying that is it has authority been conflated with expertise because we know that people come to museums for a certain level of expertise. So you want to see a curated collection. You want to see the latest information about such and such. You want you you want to experience what a community of scholars has to say about climate change. You know what fill in the blank there, you know. So Again, you know, have we lost our courage to share or even boast our scholarly insight about our collections and stories? I worry about that. I, you know, I, I deep in my heart, I feel it's okay to expose visitors to the expertise that museums have because it's perhaps the reason they've come. And so how do we balance not authority, but how do we balance expertise with the de deconstruction of authority. Right. And I don't right. know the answer to that. I, this is one that I don't necessarily have the answer to. Ah, okay. Because I'm not sure it's so clean. You know, it's but it is it is a provocation for the field to to look at issues of authority and expertise and perhaps identify how those differ and where the expertise that visitors seek, the trust that we know visitors have in these institutions. This is right up against those those statistics that AAM and Susie Wilkening like to put out there, you know, we're the number one trusted source 
more than the news media. Well, what do we do with that soft power? If we're the number one trusted source, what do we do with that? And when you say, let's just break this down a little bit. When you say, have we lost our voice? The we, from what you just said, sounds like we means the museum industry, the, the experts of the yes. museum industry, sort of the, you said industry with a capital I, right? The industry. And when you say yeah. voice, you're talking about, uh, I guess, uh, the willingness to share expertise. Yes. Right? Like the, yeah. the voice, like what, if you've lost your voice, you're, you use your voice to say something. And what are you saying? What you're talking about is expertise. So have we, as a museum industry, lost its, its, its confidence or its, its willingness or its uh, belief in the validity of, its, of sharing simply its own expertise? Not, not, uh, not to say that they're right or wrong or other people don't have a voice or people can't contribute or there aren't other sources of information, et cetera. But it sounds like what you're saying is, have we lost our voices as a museum industry uh, lost faith in the credibility and the, and the desire, the interest? in that expertise that they have on behalf of the visitors. Yeah, well said, because um, museums forever have been assembling teams, you know, an exhibit rarely, unless it's a, you know, single curated, a singly curated exhibition, which is almost more of a work of art, you know, but museums have forever been bringing people together to provide the voice of, of an exhibition, whether that's a scientist plus an educator plus a curator, Plus a you know visitor services ad or a visitor advocate, but I I feel like even within my short career of some thirty years, I've seen a shift you know in shying away from being an expert in the subject matter. You know where we are shying away from making recommendations. You know I loved I loved that there was a, a recent issue of of Exhibitionist magazine about bringing the should back to exhibitions you know we for a while there were the exhibits were you know don't be preachy don't tell visitors what we think they should know uh broker and you know uh, broker of the abundance of dialogue so you know i loved it that that our industry was willing to open up that conversation again that you know is there a should have we lost our ability to make recommendations to visitors you should do this. You should not do this. You know, it's it's hard. It's hard for our our industry and the exhibit medium to get their heads around that. And some institutions get away with it easier than others. You know, like museums of science and natural history have an easier time with the should language. You know, you, we should be doing this to prevent climate change. You should not be a smoker. You know, go back to the smoker. You know, there's an exhibit about not smoking at Chicago's uh, Museum of Science and Industry. You know, I remember as a kid looking at the black lungs and you know ex exploring my lung capacity and looking at the the I don't know if you have seen that where the marionettes all the strings go loose and all these people die of heart disease. You know, in a in an exhibit and you know yep. that those are indelibly marked in my memory as. Mm -hmm what the Museum of Science and Industry says I should do. Right. With it's a lot of shoulds. Health. Yeah. 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 So there's more, there's more obligation certainly to bring more voices to the table to, um, to tell that story and to tell the many facets of those stories. But what mm -hmm. is the, what is the, where does the expert, where is the expertise? What does the museum want you to take away from that? And who owns that? Right. So this this question, question number four, have we lost our voice? That's one you actually don't have an answer for. 
That's that's even more provocative. Yeah. So uh, question number five <laughs> uh, relates to what you were just saying. Uh, do exhibits really tell stories? Question number five, <laughs> do exhibits really tell stories? Now this one has me stumped. I do not know what you're about to say. Um, but for our, for our listeners, think about think about that for yourself. Do exhibits really tell stories? And now let's uh, turn it over to Matt for some discussion about that one. Yeah. So you know, of course they do. Of course they do. Yes, and they tell many. In fact, um, the but they don't narrate very well. You know, exhibits as as free choice stroll and select kind of experiences. The idea of a complex and detailed linear narrative or a story across the entirety of the visit, I think exhibits fail at that. You know, with all we know about visitor behavior and, you know, why do we still insist on organizing entire exhibits as one-way storylines and strict chronologies? I'm just always baffled by that. You know, if I think um, exhibits are quite akin to shopping at Ikea, more so than reading a book because you're again on your feet distracted by all the shiny objects it's all about the encounter so the idea of a complex linear narrative i have found most of those exhibits are overwhelming and the, you know the museum fatigue sets in so early in them that they they wind up not being successful so, so I have I have two questions here. One of them is rhetorical. The other one is more serious. My rhetorical question is: Why is everybody bringing up IKEA as a mental model to me these days? Why is that? <laughs> it's getting to the point where I'm hearing uh, IKEA as an example more than I'm hearing the word hologram, and I never expected that. That's out of the ordinary. My more uh, earnest question is: If exhibits are good at telling stories, and they tell many. But they're not good at the grand narrative because exhibits are stroll and select experiences. And so by the time you get to the end, you've been strolling and you've been selecting. So, you know, it's, you're not going to get what, what, alter, what is the alternative to the grand narrative, the grand chrono chronological arc that you would recommend? Are you saying because they don't do that well, you shouldn't do that? Because before you were advocating for hyper organization and chronology right. along the line would, would at least seem a way of, Definitely organizing material that's suitable for chronology. So, what would be the alternative if if the if the super chronology isn't working? What do you advocate instead? I recommend a more anthological approach with lots of sub stories that are all contributing to a larger idea that is not necessarily a linear story. Um, so, numerous encounters with you know authentic experiences at the top of the hierarchy, which is, you know, a whole other conversation around, you know, instead of building the narrative and then saying, what, what do we have to support this narrative? Looking at what kinds of experiences and objects, artifacts, sensory experiences do you want to offer and build the narrative around them? Helping, you know, in a very classic way, presenting the resource and then unpacking it with good interpretation, like, you know, graphics and audiovisual programs. So the idea of creating numerous encapsulated encounters that lead to a larger whole, it's very difficult to do. It's very, very difficult to do, especially when somebody, when a client comes to you and says, we want to tell the story of transportation in America 
from horses to trains to blimps to um, the space shuttle. And I'll let you figure out who wanted to tell that story. Hmm. But, you know, we want we want this evolution of technology over time. It's actually probably not a very good example because that's an object rich example, you know, mm-hmm. and you can you can imagine what you might see strung out as a string of pearls and, you know, that would help you construct that narrative. In some ways, it's a terrible example, but it actually illustrates the point that those those objects like the the horse, the horse drawn carriage, the first automobile you know, leading up to the space shuttle, that's a, that is a, that is how visitors are going to perceive that story is a string of objects. Mm-hmm. So the idea of this, this long story is again, eclipsed by the string of objects. And that actually, that's a, that's a, it's both a bad example and a good example because it demonstrates how the, narr- the, the Uber, the Uber construct narrative falls apart because of the eclipsing nature of those objects. Right. So this goes back to a point you were making earlier that there's the intellectual construct and there's the physical construct. And your your point in I think the first one about about decluttering by hyperorganization was make the intellectual construct and the physical construct match. So imagine that same example with a way less charismatic collection. Let's say you have you have a spinning wheel, you have a toaster, you have a um, electric fan, you have an old timey radio. You know they're not they're not all objects of transportation. Yeah. So do exhibits really tell stories? Yes, and they tell many, but they don't narrate very well. I think that's a that's yeah, a very yes. interesting point. Was that number six? Is our and this is our last one. This is a great one to to sort of be a last question uh, to ask. Are yeah. exhibits here we go. Number six, are exhibits, I'm, I don't even know if I want to say this. So number six, are exhibits getting any better? Are people? exhibits getting any better? Okay, listeners, are exhibits, number six, are exhibits getting any better? What is your answer to that question, listeners? Okay. Well, let me Matt, ask, can you, let can me you guide us along? Let me ask the listeners, what's the, A, what's the best exhibit you've ever seen? And how long ago was it? When, when when was it? How quick is it for you to recall your you know top five list? I have a hard time, quite frankly, identifying the best exhibits I've seen. Excellent exhibits are few and far between, in my experience. I, I you know, and what's odd about that is we have so many tools to help us identify what excellent exhibits are. We even have standards of exhibit excellence. We have visitors bill of rights. We have Smithsonian guidelines. We have national park service guidelines. We have visitor studies association. How many other industries would kill to have, you know, a user, a user advocacy group like the visitor studies association as a, as a companion to, to really assist us in meeting those visitors needs. And alas, <laughs> excellent exhibits are few and far between. You know, I think we, I think what we do is we challenge the art form so regularly. We challenge what exhibitions do well. You know, we were the the, the exhibition medium was founded on the desire to collect and to display things and to interpret them, and then it, you know that 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 has evolved to become way more complicated than that. And through a lot of testing, 
you know, we've figured out what makes for good exhibitions, but we, we just don't deliver that as often as we should with so much, so much material available to us. About You're saying there's a lot of, with all those, with all the standards, the AAM exhibitor excellence, the visitors bill of rights, visitor studies association as a, as an entity, uh, putting out materials. One would think that with all of those, um, internal advocates with all of those, uh, with all those giants whose shoulders one can stand on, one would think that we would have gone ever higher, but you're seeing that that's not the case. And I, and this is not my, this is not my solo opinion. You know, this is the conversation I have at the bar at the conferences. You know, what's the best exhibit you've seen lately? Do you feel exhibits are getting better? Professionally speaking, what you're basically saying is that there are these resources, there are standards, there are people who are out there uh, creating new standards, evaluating, creating resources that the industry can use in order to improve what they're doing. And the underlying sentiment you're saying here is, is that uh, people are not taking advantage of those. They're, the the yeah. tools that are in abundant evidence are not being used by the industry in order to make... Imagine what the exhibits could be. Imagine how spectacular compared to the average exhibits could be if people only mm -hmm. used these... You know what I'd love to do? I'd love to get uh, after the show, I'd love to get what those things are, what those, because let's, let's help. Let's get the URL. Let, let me get the URLs yeah, of the yeah. things that you think are important resources that are being overlooked. I will put them in the show notes and I will make okay, sure that great. we, we do our part to get them out there so that people can use them. People can go bone up. They can read the top, you know, white papers of each one of these things and up their game. Right. So is yeah. there, um, yeah, that, you know, and not to, um, not that the magic, uh, you know, the magic lies in, as you said, boning up on all of that, it's because some of it is just the artistry of our, of our industry. Let me go back to just some of the points that we talked about at the top of the hour. You know, if, if every exhibit was, again, this is the world according to Matt, if the, right. but if you're, you're, you're my guest, well, so this is the world. If, according every to Matt, yeah. if every exhibit was well organized, if every exhibit was not cluttered and did less better, if every exhibit had a clear voice that to me would be a good start. You know, that would be a good starting point. You know, that, that, that I guess that's the purpose of me bringing these to the table today and concluding it with a statement like exhibits are not always getting better. <laughs> so I think there are tremendous resources out there that I will absolutely help you identify, but there are some just artistry, artistic nuances for what we do that have yet to be documented. And your podcast and your newsletter is one of them, Jonathan. You know, I, I learned an awful lot, you know, looking through your, looking through your um, newsletter recently. Like, yeah, I totally agree with that one. Oh, I would love to talk to Jonathan about that. I have a different opinion about that. Aha. Uh -huh. um, okay. The, That's what I was waiting of, for. I'm, I'm looking for, uh, I'm looking for of, an argument of here. creating dialogue for excellence. I think there's still a, you know, there's, that's a continuing conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I have to ask you, because I think the visitors are probably wondering, uh, what would be one great exhibit that you have seen from anywhere in your, you said it's, you struggle to name your top five, but there must be one that if I say, what's one of your favorite exhibits, Matt, you'd blurt it out. What is it? Uh, the fakes at the Getty. The gallery of of forgeries and fakes at the Getty rings out in my rings out in my memory as being quite extraordinary for its stepping out of what you expect from the Getty, mm -hmm. but also its it 
it checks the boxes above it checks it's you know it's hyper organized there's a whole little sidebar exhibit about how the fakes were constructed which is step one step two step three step four to me that was an excellent an excellent exhibit the other i have two that i frequently cite that's always one the other one is um it's a whole institution it's the punta Calier in um montreal um just the most interesting and impress just leaves such an impression on you the most impressionable interplay of gorgeous space gorgeous architecture um and an easy idea that you are beneath the streets of montreal and beneath the streets of montreal you literally physically are beneath the streets of montreal the streets are overhead you're in uh, a remnant you know an archaeological remnant of old montreal so you're surround you're immersed in that and the concept is deliciously simple. You know, the, the evidence found beneath the streets provides a window into what old Montreal was like. Clears a bell, beautifully displayed in front of you through every, every means possible. Old sewer tiles and, and old broken dishes. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's a marvelous experience. Have you been to Pointe Collier? I have not. So I'm, I'm guessing that the fakes and, they and forgeries... project on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll work. That always Lots works. Of projection onto the ruins. Projecting they, they, onto stuff. Yeah, you got to do that. They, 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 um, they employ just, just beautiful interpretive technique there. And that one is, that one is still there. One assumes if, if the listeners yep. would like to say, Oh, I'm going to, put that on my bucket list, that would be one. But is, uh, is if the forgeries and fakes of the Getty was, is that a permanent show or is that something that came and went? Mm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I kind of, I, I saw it a, quite a long time ago. And when AAM was last in Los Angeles, I tried to go see it again and I had a hard, I, I didn't find it. So I'm, um, hmm. I am going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that the exhibit that I saw is not there anymore although the forgers forgeries and fakes as a collection is probably still there all right let's see let's do a quick recap uh we have been talking about six provocative questions number one do exhibits default to clutter number two do exhibits teach very well number three do exhibits need to allow for personalization or customization Number four, have we lost our voice? Number five, do exhibits really tell stories? And number six, are exhibits getting any better? How did I do? Did I leave anything out? No, that's it. That's it? Okay. Well, I hope the, the visitors have sort of played along and we left a little space right after each question uh, deliberately in our conversation so that people kind of think for themselves, answer quickly what they think. Be very interested to hear. Please uh, take a look at the show notes and, and write into either one of us if you've if you've got, if you uh, strongly agree, strongly disagree, um, have an I urge towards to a, yeah. <laughs> let's keep it civil, people. All right. <laughs> so um, looks like we've covered it for now. Matt Kirkman, it has been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. If folks would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them okay. to do that? Uh, LinkedIn, email, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name, although you uh, um, pronounced it correctly as Kirkman, it looks like Kirchman, K-I-R-C-H-M-A-N. And you can find me at objectidea.com. Terrific. Okay. That's it for this episode. 
And by the way, did you know this podcast has a sister? It is a short daily newsletter, as Matt mentioned, every weekday under the same name, Making the Museum. It is all about exhibition planning for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. And you can learn more and subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.